The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. feel like what I've seen with BCI is exactly that triggers that intrinsic motivation because now at the end the client sees a score the client gets a picture of the brain activity mm-hmm. so even though it seems boring to us I feel like it might even be more boring to us as clinicians to just sit there and watch <laughs> than to the client the client yeah. is so into it at that point mm-hmm. and I think sometimes they forget get that it's boring you know that the focus shifts uh-huh. more on I'm gonna beat my score all thoughts go away all I think is open open close, you're right rest. on you're um, right on welcome to another great noggins and neurons episode before I get too far along in the introduction I want to let you know how things are proceeding first of all This conversation occurred on August 22nd of this year, 2022. Knowing the date is important for two reasons. First, it will help you understand some of the things that we talk about in this conversation. It's also relevant because this episode is one that Doro and I do together, and there are still several more to come that I recorded before she came on board. We will be mixing things up with interviews that I've done alone and those that we do together. Now that we're on the same page 
With that information, let me introduce Lauren Souders, an occupational therapist from St. Louis, Missouri. Lauren is a certified brain injury specialist, as well as a certified stroke rehabilitation specialist. She is very knowledgeable on using brain-computer interface technology, known as BCI for short, in stroke recovery through her work with Neurolutions, where she is the Director of Clinical Operations. Lauren is the first occupational therapist to pioneer this technology, assisting in the development and integrated clinical applications of BCI to stroke patients. The brain-computer interface achieved a breakthrough designation and de novo classification from the FDA for the IPSI-HAN system from Neurolutions. We cover a wide array of topics in this inspiring conversation, starting with the basics of BCI and moving on to brain frequencies, how and when to use BCI, paradigm shifts, and what all of this means for survivors and those who work with survivors. Real quick, before we get into the conversation, I want to mention the Noggins and Neurons podcast membership. If you love what you hear on the podcast and want to take your recovery or practice to new places, consider joining the membership. Go to nogginsandneurons.supercast.com and sign up. Right now, membership is just $5 a month through October 15th, 2022. Signing up now puts you in the founder circle, and who doesn't want to be part of that? The fee will go up a bit after October 15th as well. Check the show notes for the membership link, as well as other good things that we talk about always. And now, on to Lauren and BCI. I love your outline, and thank you for being so organized. Well, thank you for thinking that I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Doro, I've never had anyone be so clear and give us, let's follow this flow. And I thought, oh, Oh, see, this is great. You don't have to stick to it either. It's just throwing it out. (laughs) It's a good place to start. We probably won't because we just always, we go down rabbit holes. We have tangents. And okay, great. I love that. I think that's why people like our podcast because that's what we do. Well, you you don't want to be too sterile, right? Oh God. I have to. No, I had to bleep myself. I'm leaving leaving literally like an hour and a half after this. And I, I told her that I will not text her at all this week. I'll try to remember that she's very busy and I will not bother her. Oh, so it'll be okay. I'll be all right. I'll probably be very drunk. Oh, shoot, you're <laughs> recording. Oh, you, you better cut that out. Well, I don't know. Celebrations. So, yeah, Celebrations. that's right. Maybe I'll pull a Pete and say, oh, I missed that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I never great. really knew for sure if he was serious or <laughs> he was joking about that. So I was going to say an opening of like some kind words, but when I met Pete, do you want to? say something sappy now would be the time because when Pete died we did those uh, episodes like so many people were affected by him not Mm -hmm. being here so if you want to say something sappy you go right ahead it's not it's not totally sappy but it is I actually do credit him a lot because I was a new grad and I wanted to be a neuro I did all of my 
student work and my clinical rotations in neuro, but then I took his course way back in 2011. It might've been 2010, 2011. And he was just the, and I had taken other courses, but it was the only course where he was open. That was like, if you have questions, email me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually email the instructor and talk. I mean, it was, I just liked having that open dialogue. And then we made fun of and had a good laugh over all of his stick figure drawings of the Fugelmeyer because he had talked about how he tried so hard with the stick figure people to make it look like perfect. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> but, but he no, just, I, yeah, he was such he a real guy. Yeah. He set like the whole stage for actually having good neuro resources. And when I was a new grad, so yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah. I used his book. Yeah. yeah I never even heard of his courses or anything. I just, I had his book. I don't even know how I got his book. And when I, when I found it and started reading it, I was like, well, gosh, everybody should have this book. Mm -hmm. So I recommended it to all my patients, families, all my patients, all my colleagues. And then I even bought it for giveaways at the college, but it was always the last thing chosen by therapists. They just didn't know. They they just didn't know better. <laughs> no, they wanted the t-shirts and the swag. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love it. I know. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh. So as you can tell, it's this is a relaxed atmosphere. If you need to pause or anything, just let me know. We can do I that. Like, I do like this because I've had podcasts before that it's literally like you have to be on deck the whole time and then you have to do time marks when you want to cut, you know? Oh no. I I would be watching right now and making notes. So I can't, I cannot live life that way. I have no desire to live life that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of want to ask Dora a question. I I just want to spin it back on you about BCI since you've used it in more ways than I have, to be very honest. Um, what are your initial thoughts before we even dive into like what BCI is? Because you're seeing patients, you're using it. So what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, I love it. So I think BCI has so much potential um, beyond, uh, beyond the devices that we've worked with, you know, that you can use it in all kinds of different ways, whether it's um, internal or external BCI devices, but I think it's definitely, it's going to be the new thing in rehab tech. I would agree. So do you guys just want me to start like what BCI is? Yeah. I mean, we can do like a, Hey Lauren, thanks for joining us type thing and then dive in or it doesn't matter. I mean, what do you want to do? Hey guys, thanks for having me today. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Glad to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you as a guest today and talk about BCI, which is Brain Computer Interface. And it's one of the latest technologies out on the market for stroke and brain injury rehab. And we just want to learn a little bit more about what BCI is, how it can be used. And yeah, um, yeah, we're excited. Welcome. Thanks. So, I love BCI, so I I can honestly talk about it forever. But what it is, 
in a very broad term is basically when someone has a neurological injury, we bypass that injury by picking up on the brain, what they're wanting to do, what their intentions are. It could be what they're wanting to move. It could be what they're wanting to say, depending how you're using it. And we use a computer to help augment that and move around that injury to get the output that we want. So three parts to a system. It's usually some way to tap into a frequency or some form of brain activity. There's a computer that processes that frequency and then the output. The ones I'm most comfortable with and, and know most about is when we're working with stroke patients who have hemiparesis and we're wanting to build an intense therapy for motor recovery. And so we use um, a, a dry electrode or an EEG signal to tap into, and, and we can go dive into details later, but to essentially say, hey, I want to move this impaired hand, we can augment that and allow them to wear an orthosis that allows them to control the opening and closing of their hand with their mind. Very cool. Yeah. So you just mentioned bypassing the injury. Yes. Can you dive a little bit deeper into <laughs> what it means to bypass the injury? Because so far, what we know in neuro rehab is we have an injury, let's say on the right hemisphere of the brain, which will affect the left side of the body. So you will not be able to move your left side as good as you did before. And now your right side in the brain has the injury. So how do you bypass that area and still get activation in the brain? Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit? Yeah. So with motor recovery, just like you said, truly 90% of those motor fibers are on that contralateral side where again, right side of the brain affects the left side of the body. However, 10% of motor fibers that are in the premotor cortex on the uninjured side of the brain or the same side of that left-sided weakness is really controls the motivation of somebody wanting to move their arm and hand and trying to move their, their arm and hand. And so if we can pick up and characterize that specific frequency in that area, then we, if they, that patient says, okay, I want to move my hand, we, we identify it then we have this output where we can open and close using an orthosis. So that's kind of the bypassing the injury, but I also looked, look at it more as trying to facilitate that neuroplasticity and getting other areas of the brain to tap in and have nice feedback over and over in an intense repetitious way to kind of build and recruit more neurons for that. Exactly. So you basically are taking that 10% and trying to beef it up. Exactly. Hopefully and eventually, um, give it a higher percentage and, and move the hand again. Right. For example. And, and with BCI, there's, there's two different ways that there are folks in the world doing it today. So there's the invasive approach where Synchron is a company doing a lot of research right now out of David Petrino's lab in Mount Sinai. You should follow him because he does a lot of great stuff, but they are doing invasive, you know, a way to tap into those brain signals very close to the brain's surface, like the cortex surface, for specific outputs. And I recently heard they worked with ALS. It was their first patient, I believe, to promote function in that sort. And there's other folks that are trying to do this in a more non-invasive way and to make sure the signal is still good, a brain signal is still good. With where I work and what I do, we use non-invasive. So we use an EEG sensor, dry electrode. There's no gel or anything like that, but it just sits on the scalp almost like a a stethoscope listening to frequency and we can get a pretty good signal right in that premotor cortex too if somebody's thinking i i want to move my hand um, and then we can pick up on that signal so there's there's a lot of work going on right now 
So I think it's really exciting to see where this is going to go. I can see it in the health world and I can see it not in the health world. I can see it being used kind of differently. So clinical data. I felt like I've been talking nonstop. So I wanted to pause and give oh. Deb a chance oh. if she wants to say anything. Well, you actually asked the question that I was going to ask. So that was fun. <laughs> I kind of like because I'm an instructor and I I kind of like the teaching mode. So I just I want to maybe if we could just talk a little bit more about that 10 percent that that is mm-hmm. on the so that is on the ipsilateral side, correct? It is. Mm-hmm. So I just I kind of want to drive that point home a little bit. Because Mm -hmm. we tend to think very silo-ish, like, okay, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body, the end. And that is not true. Right. And so can you, I don't know, just how do we think about that clinically? Like as clinicians, Mm -hmm. remembering that and then helping survivors understand what they need to understand in order to successfully participate. You know, this is, it's it's really an, a new concept because it we really just kind of tapped into it a lot of people still classic dogma you know again right side of the body is controlled by the left side of the brain and really what i think a good and for anybody to learn is hebbian learning theory and so when we first looked into this in the very beginning it was well we know that neurons that fire together wire together and if we can do this over and over again we've seen it with neuroplasticity in children and learning new motor outcomes can we do this in an area of the brain that it is it is healthy? You can do it. And can we do this mass repetition and see what can happen? And so I think it's really good when we apply that theory and we say, hey, I know you had a brain injury in this area of the brain or a, a stroke in this area of the brain, but you do have healthy brain tissue. And we this is the time that we need to be very intense and we need to focus in that recovery to ho- hopefully facilitate, again, that that neuroplasticity. And the thing is with stroke patients, it's a little more difficult and brain injury, obviously, because you have those injuries in the brain. You see a lot of BCI being used in spinal cord injury, much easier. You can tap into a lot of healthy tissues usually in the brain. Uh, But when it comes to stroke and brain injury, it's finding that really specific spot that makes sense for motor recovery. And, And what we found with stroke is that, again, on that healthy side of the brain, the premotor cortex, there's a perfect area right there. And we know with the homunculus, you know, a lot of the cortical space for the thumb and hand is right there. And we have a great area to kind of tap into that. And I think as clinicians and when patients and caregivers hear this, you know, again, they hear the same thing a lot of the time. Like this is just the damage. This is the way it most likely will be after six months. And I want people to know that that's not necessarily true at all. And with intensity and neuroplasticity and tapping into the right neurons with the right feedback, you can really see some wonderful, you know, outcomes in these patients. So that's my thought. And I, but a lot of it's heavy in learning theory in my eyes. So. I love well, it. This... That's just, sorry. Sorry. No, you, I'm sorry. You go. I'm sorry. No, no, no you go. This, um... <laughs> <laughs> this information is being shared and used all in all disciplines now, even people who are into meditation, like people say, oh, you know, I'm not into meditation, but it really is focused thought. And people change their lives. Athletes change their lives. Uh, Anybody, anybody Mm -hmm. in the world, they're changing their lives 
through more controlled focus of the brain. It's hard. It's it's hard. <laughs> That's something I struggle with on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> I say. Yes, you're right. It's very hard. And I'm, I know I can go off on tangents just a little bit, but sound vibration therapy, sound therapy, I experienced this for the first time about a week and a half ago. I went with my best friend and she's going to kill me for saying this, but I went with my best friend, Allison, where you were wanting to get into this brain focused, calm state. And we couldn't do it. Like we, we, we tried and it's so hard. And so I actually was thinking about this when I use BCI or in the clinical studies I was in and I was using BCI patients, we always say, you know, you focus on moving your hand and then you try to rest your thoughts and, and get into this like calm space before you go back to thinking about it again. And that is the hardest thing for any of our patients to achieve. I mean, you would see their accuracy really low as you know, some people have seen on just trying to rest their thoughts. It is so hard. Mm -hmm. It really is. Well, we're trained to be on the go all the time. Our thoughts are all over the place because for all the reasons that they are, I'm not even going to get into that. But as soon as you're told to rest and relax, it's kind of hard. Anxiety. Like, (laughs) what's going on? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And well, Oh, no, I was gonna say, and, you know, with BCI, depending, you know, obviously, I think BCI can be used. I'd love to tap into a lot of different ways. It's just straight function, you know, so speech and all of that. But when it comes to a therapeutic intervention, where we're talking about this focus and attention, what I find, you know, even though I think the patients that have used this have done way better than I ever would, especially on the intention and focus, they they do get better, but they tend to get really tired and cognitively tired, but their attention starts, you know, they, they will start subjectively saying my attention feels better or, or I'm not um, forgetting something so little during the day. And, and then you can see those kind of scores improve. It's, it's really interesting to kind of see how it all plays out, but I really should do a lot more BCI attention, like attentive therapy on myself, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably all of us should. <laughs> You already mentioned the brain frequency. Mm-hmm. Are we going to talk a little bit about that? Because sure. it, it ties in the yeah. different, like the different frequencies and what they cause our brain to do to control <clears throat> our body. Right. In my experience, when we're looking at the frequencies, we're looking actually at a specific range, a frequency range of hertz in kind of two domains. I'm looking at what the in the premotor cortex what their brain is when we say relax and rest and we do this over and over again but just to kind of see where that baseline resting frequency is and then I look at the other one which is think about that motor imagery piece and imagine moving your hand and and I always say things since I'm looking at the upper extremity you know really imagine moving your hand and then tapping to your thumb because there's a lot of cortical mapping at that thumb And, you know, just really think and imagine that. Don't try to do it. Just imagine it. And then I take that frequency. I will say, as a little tangential here, when I do look at patients who have had a stroke, sometimes, not always, but sometimes we do see a good signal on the injured side of the brain. And what do you do when you see that? And so sometimes as a clinician, I want to know, you know, how far out is it from their stroke? Because sometimes there's a lot of inflammation and changes that happen around that stroke injury. And then if it is farther out, 
if contralateral looks good, I'm just going to throw this out here. I will use that signal. And I, if it's there, I use it just because they tend to do really well. If you have it, let's use it. Yes. <laughs> Save the penumbra. Oh, yeah. You know what? I was actually talking about, I was thinking I was going to bring up the penumbra, but I thought that I, I, I don't know. I thought maybe it might be a little too much, but oh, may, no. clearly not. Clearly I could have brought it up. Oh, the no. Br bring it up. Talk I was thinking about, about the penumbra too. You know, Pete was all about the penumbra. So if people have <laughs> yes. been listening to the beginning episodes of our podcast, they probably know about it. Well, and, yeah, and that whole bringing awareness to yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. We need to. Yeah. And then when to tap into looking at that contralateral signal. Yeah. So when I was talking about the inflammation and nights, I was really talking about the penumbra of, you know, when you see it, when you don't, do you excite, do you inhibit kind of all of those things. And that's something that we looked pretty deeply in, in the research that I had done, really looking at the timing of when they had their stroke, what type of therapy they had or didn't have, or what type of sensory input may they have had or didn't have prior to us even looking at it, just because if we could, maybe we would tap in on that contralateral. And and I did see a couple contralateral patients, mostly all ipsilateral, but I did see a couple. And the ones who we did use a contralateral signal had some of the greatest gains on our outcome measures. So there's something to be said there. I'm feeling like I'm a little confused right now. Me, yeah, why? So, well, <laughs> I, I might have to cut this out because I don't want to be embarrassed, but... Well, no, it's it's an open, open, safe space here. Safe space. <laughs> I don't know what That's the what audience think. I know <laughs> the audience. We might drop in <laughs> listener retention after this. Actually, I've put myself out there on the podcast <laughs> many times. Um, so you're talking about the contralateral side, like contralateral with the penumbra, but I'm thinking ipsilateral to the um the, the, infarct. The, the, so yeah. when you say contralateral are you talking about the so the i was effect? yeah i'm talking about the <laughs> okay. affected limb yeah okay. this is why you know what i'm really glad you're bringing this up because in my world we always say contralateral ipsilateral and we know what we're talking about now let's be honest so when our company and we had gone you know we've done publications or we've gone to fda it was like we need to describe this differently and and i'm hearing it again here so <laughs> wait a minute what, what so am no, i doing you're, you're not the crazy one here it's, okay. it's just so sometimes we'll more so now say, and it was, it's still, you know, we're still learning to get used to it, contralesional. So we oh, might say contralesional or ipsilesional. So they know, are you talking about the injured side of the brain or the uninjured side of the brain? So we actually, you know, we, that's now what our publications that, that we've used, we're using that term a little bit better so that we don't have that confusion like okay. we just had. <laughs> <laughs> So, but, okay. so I guess I should rephrase and just say, sometimes when we see signals that are on the ipsilesional or the injured side of the brain, and we don't see it often, but if we do, and we know that the, again, the penumbra inflammation, maybe it's gone back down, or we know that that's a good time to still tap into that signal. We will use that instead. So I'm, I have another question. And so Doro, I'm kind of hogging it right now, but when we're talking about the penumbra, and mm -hmm. tapping into that area, how are we supposed to think about using BCI in terms of time frame from stroke? Because we know if mm -hmm. we do too much too soon, we can cause further yes. injury. So yeah, how do we think about that? That's a great question. 
because in my world, that's actually a huge part of a lot of our research was why we were pushed into chronic as with most studies, because we didn't want anything else to be confounding, you know, due to spontaneous recovery and all the variables that fall into those first six months. Truly. I, I think as a clinician, I, I really wish that I could get into what I call kind of like the pre-chronic phase right at that three month. And sometimes I see literature out there that does say chronic at three months, even though that's a little, sometimes, you know, up for grabs there, but I think BCI in that realm in that time, this is just my opinion only would be a great time to put it in there. I heard a lot of people saying, let's do this intervention in inpatient. And again, I think that would be a case by case basis, just depending on how far out they are. What's the fatigue? What's can, you know, even just that cognitive component of being attentive to therapy. And so to me, I think the sweet spot, I'd love to start studying it more in that three month post-stroke. I'd love to push it up and maybe a little bit, maybe two months post-stroke. I'd love to push it up a little bit sooner. I think the gains, and again, my opinion only would be even greater at that point than what I even see in chronic. That That's my opinion. So I'd love to do that. Well, that's what I was thinking about because I know Pete talks so much about tapping into the penumbra during that phase when the swelling mm-hmm. is going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when things start to like come into focus and, you know, they can actually, okay, mm-hmm. this is what's happened. This is what I have to do. Yeah. 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 And the other thing, and I, now I haven't, found it in the literature yet, but I've heard it before. And I always question how we can work BCI into this to make it better too. And I, what I heard is that learned non-use in those who have a stroke really starts to set in within the first like three to six days is what I heard. Is it sooner? It's right away. It's the moment of injury. Mm -hmm. Is it a moment of injury? Yeah. Moment of injury. Okay. So that's, that's my question where what can we do safely at that time to facilitate a better outcome. And I always wonder, is BCI a good, you know, is that a time too? I don't know. So there's a lot to learn with there BCI. There sure is. Yeah. Still a lot to learn in stroke recovery in general. Or I think we're at the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. I, so much more. Mm-hmm. So yeah, much. I'm, I'm curious. So as clinicians, we go to OT school or PT school, and we don't learn anything about these technologies. No. So I'm a huge advocate in general that clinicians should always look at the latest technologies. But unfortunately, a lot of the settings don't even consider any using any of these technologies. But how do you envision the, the practice setting to change with these kinds of technologies available to clients? It's, I think everything's shifting to more onto the patient and the family. Um, It will shift to them. It will shift to being more home use based, remote therapeutic type monitoring. That's what I'm sensing. And of course in stroke rehab, I I like that and I don't (laughs) for a few reasons, just for the fact that I think it's great for it's just that intensity piece and having that face to face, I think is still really important for this, this patient population. But I do see our clinics, you know, kind of pushing more less in-person visits, more out of the clinic. And I also, as you were saying in school, this is another thing, you know, again, we don't learn this advanced tech. And then I think when clinicians, we do hear about it, 
we are skeptical off the bat. I have always been way skeptical off the bat. And then you just wonder, and, and maybe I'm just throwing this out here. I was, you know, working in a large hospital system. When someone would come in with technology, I'm thinking, well, they just want to sell us the piece of technology. They're going to say anything that they want. And, you know, and, and you're just skeptical. And I think the practice itself, and I hope on both sides, right, in the healthcare setting and for those who work in advanced tech, that we change kind of that paradigm. I think it really needs to shift now, especially with the push of patients getting it more outside of the clinic, that don't just push a device. Put a device where it's appropriate. Don't push it on someone who it's not. And um, that's one thing I actually really like, and a lot of people who have worked with me, even on this industry side, know that that's a huge piece of me, that I, I'm all on clinical evidence only. But the greatest thing about BCI is that it's up to that person if, and this is a good thing to bring up, if they're appropriate for it. And in the current literature in a healthy population, if you, I were to screen, you know, I don't know, 100 people around here today for a specific BCI controlled signal, whatever it might be, roughly 15 to 16% won't have a signal. And so with BCI, I think a lot of the evidence is showing a really good motor recovery type of intervention is that it's you have to screen the patient and make sure they even have a signal and that it's even appropriate. So it's a type of advanced technology that you you can't just sell to anybody. It has to be truly screened for that individual. And so that's something I actually really like. But I think more so my biggest thing is I think in advanced tech and clinicians and universities and healthcare systems have to start speaking the same language and realize that it's about the patient and you need to do what's best for the patient. And that's kind of above all else. So yeah, in my opinion, but. I fully agree. So talking about that technology and clinicians and what we have learned in school and that we have not learned any high tech, mm -hmm. how did you transition from being an OT in a clinic, hands-on with clients to being out in the tech world? You know, I miss it. I mean, I will see patients in a heartbeat. I, I do miss it and I do still see patients, but I'll be very honest, I miss it. So yeah, how I fell into it was, it was interesting. So my, I will say my personality is something that I will always try something. Like if someone says, Hey, do you want to do this? Even if I question it, I'm like, uh, yeah, and I'll just try it out. And that's kind of how I was in my professional career when I started out. So I'm seeing patients. I worked at the Rehab Institute in St. Louis with WashU. And when I was there, lots of research opportunities, lots of fun things were going on, Brain Recovery Corps, and got to meet a lot of people. So in 2010, I had somebody come in out of the blue and say, hey, there's somebody who's a student from WashU that wants to observe you with a, a, a patient who's had a stroke. Can they do that in the next hour? Sure. And this individual sat down in front of me and he literally said, you know, I'm just working in a lab and on my PhD and I am... Um, I want to be able to do mind controlled things for patients who have had a stroke. And I literally was like, this person's crazy, but I let him sit with me. And then I fast forward to a year later, one of the physicians said, Hey, I'm going to start a clinical study here at WashU. There's a neurosurgeon who is working on brain computer interface. He wants to see if we can put this as an intervention and just see what happens for those who've had a stroke. And do you just want to like help us out and write a protocol? And I just thought, oh yeah, of course, sure. I'll do it. <laughs> And so we wrote the protocol and we were very, we actually worked on that protocol for a good year, year and a half before we really felt, okay, let's try it. And so then I, I kind of slipped into doing clinic halftime and then being on this research site at WashU and then working with that over and over and the sponsor who is the company who is, 
you know, sponsoring some of the study to see if there's something here. Once that study was complete, it was, would you come to our company and help us keep the clinical evidence going and learning from a patient perspective and a clinician perspective? Because the company that I'm at, they valued very much of who's your end user, who's actually going to be using this and is it the patient? Great. Then we need to be talking to a thousand plus patients right now. And so that's how I got into it. I kind of just slipped from in clinic to doing research and doing in clinic and then kind of switching over to the industry side. But when I did that, I was still doing clinical studies. So I was still seeing patients and I still love that. I don't see as many patients as I would like right now. Dora knows that. I would love just to, I mean, I just have fun. It's, I have fun with all the patients I work with and I miss it. So well, I don't worry. Go back. I got yeah. some good ones lined up <laughs> I, for you this week. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I really am. I cannot wait. I love being in a clinic with patients. It's just, it's my jam, actually. So, do you want a yeah, job? I feel that. Uh, hey, yeah. hey, 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 hey. <laughs> do I have to get my oh, OT can... license in Florida? There's, yes, I do. There's several Excuse positions me. available. <laughs> oh, Duh. okay. Okay. Several. Okay. Can I just come in <laughs> once a month? Can I come in once a month? Sure. Yeah, you can do like a. A An guest intensive? treater or something, you know. I'll be you like, I'll do in. intensives, do intensives for like a week. No, it's got mm. no two weeks. Can we do three weeks? <laughs> three week intensives. Yes. The more Wait, the better. <laughs> that's what we're signed up for right now. It's three weeks. That's great. I mean, that's great, actually. So that's actually something I want to dive into because I've noticed it with in some of the BCI is intensives. And so going into it was talking about mass repetition, but it can't just be any repetition. It has to be an intention, like valued repetition. And so I actually, I've had conversations with Dora. I just said actually yesterday, I would love to see, like I would do a clinical study on her little clinic just to see how well her patients do after her intensives, because we know they do awesome. And it's just, there's something to capture there, Doro just to help a lot of other patients, I think, when it comes to the intensity. So kudos to you. <laughs> She's Thanks. amazing. She I know. really is. I know. No, I know. Intensives are just, we see them work, you know, mm -hmm. that's why we keep going with it. And then yeah. we tweak it for every client. Somebody might lose um, ability to concentrate and focus after three hours. So we cap it at three hours a day. Some can go for five hours. So we take full advantage of it. Oh, I would. Yeah. I mean, again, so it's what's going to motivate your patient. I always say Absolutely. whatever motivates your patient is when you're going to see the best outcome. So find what really makes them tick and then go for it. And so with BCI, it's a little difficult because it's such sustained focus. And this is something I should bring up because I know other folks are doing it too. For the BCI that I'm working with, we try to just minimum say 150 reps a day, right? Get 150 reps a day, but they have to be focused. You really got to be attentive, very attentive, but it's hard to keep focus when it, it's, you know, we are so used to like high stimulation, gamification all the time. And since this is kind of this new theory of intervention coming in, this is a paradigm shift with BCI is that it is a strict focus and over repetition over and over and over again. And it is intense, but some people might say, oh my gosh, that looks so boring, but it really is it's a way to like calm the brain, get it going, calm the brain, get it going. And so again, it's kind of a twofold, right? Dora, I'm kind of like on two ends of the spectrum here. Like you have to motivate your patient 
And there, there's that side. So in the, your intensive, that's perfect, right? You're tapping into what they want to do and you go, go, go. And then I think also on the other side with BCI, you see great results with it. I, so I'm just like thinking out loud to myself right now. Sorry. I'm on no, two no, 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 you're good. No, we're, I'm super excited. We just, we designed a intensive. It starts in a couple of weeks. So we're going to start the morning with a BCI session. Then mm -hmm. give the clients about an hour break, maybe an hour mm -hmm. and a half, rest a little bit, sleep, go to the hotel. The clients usually stay really close to our facility so they can take rest breaks in between. Then we're going to do three hours of hardcore, high Ten. repetition, neuromuscular re-education. And then it. we're going to take another break and we're going to end the day with BCI. Wow. Um, oh, that's so we're going to awesome. do five plus hours a day for five days a week for three weeks. So I'm stoked to see yeah, what's awesome. going to happen. Yeah. You oh know my what? goodness. I just, I have to say something here. Two. I just have yes. to. You talked about, you talked about a lot of things. You talked about some clinicians not being open to learning about yes. technology. Mm -hmm. You talked about motivating patients. You talked about boring interventions. Mm -hmm. And all of these things are really important things. So if we as clinicians are not willing to learn about new interventions, the technologies that actually work, I think that maybe we should think about ourselves and consider if we are not open-minded, then it's a far reach for us to expect the patients that we work with to be open-minded. So coming back Absolutely. to ourselves and then bringing that into the boring and the motivation piece. So we know that stroke recovery is hard. It's hard work. And that focus, it's hard. It really, I don't think boring is the right word. I mean, I think that that's the word mm -hmm. that we all use. And that's what patients use. And oh, I don't want to do that because it's boring. boring but you want to yeah. do what works. It's hard work. And the whole motivation piece the brain likes spontaneity, the brain likes variety, the brain likes those things. And I just finished up doing some research on mirror therapy and learning about how the cycle works in the brain. So with the cerebellum and mm -hmm. the higher order visual pathways and how they actually, it actually loops through the, the center of the brain with the basal ganglia. And it's the basal ganglia it's that region that decides what it wants to do. Yeah, right? that's the like, gatekeeper. That's the, right. It's the selection maker. Right. Do I like yeah. you or do I not? <laughs> yeah. So right. the thing to me is like when we use the word motivation, I think a lot of therapists think that we're here to motivate our patients. But a lot of it is like what is the internal brain motivation piece? Mm -hmm. Intrinsic piece. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's getting the brain to decide that it chooses to do those things that the person wants it to do, which I think is amazing about what Doro, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're getting the variety in there. You're, you're getting rest in there. You're getting the repetitions in there and you're not you're, like, you're being very mindful about how you're structuring these sessions. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure it's client centered and fits every client and about the boring so it makes perfect sense what Lauren said that it's boring when you look at a screen and you open close or open rest 
mm-hmm. open rest, right? But I feel like what I've seen with BCI is exactly that triggers that intrinsic motivation because now at the end, the client sees a score. Mm-hmm. The client gets a picture of the brain activity. Mm-hmm. So even though it seems boring to us, I feel like it might even be more boring to us as clinicians to just sit there and watch than <laughs> yeah. to the client. The client yeah. is so into it at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes they forget that it's boring. You know, that the focus shifts uh-huh. more on, I'm going to beat my score. All thoughts go away. All I think is open, open, close, You're right rest. on. You're um, right on. And it's just, I've I've never... With a BCI, I don't think I've ever had a client that said, wow, that was really boring. <laughs> you just made a really good point. You want to know why? So you're exactly right. It's probably because, you know, we see it, right? We are the clinicians sitting there. Sorry if you can hear my yellow lab picking on my pug right now. Probably oh, no, can. go right ahead. Pug in the yellow lab. <laughs> right. But here's a good story. I was working with a patient. And again, I've seen the BCI I've worked with over and over and over again. And, you know, I did a screening, I saw a signal, I tried it out. I, and he actually started crying. I may have told you this story before, Dar, but the patient just started crying and was so happy. And, and you kind of forget, right. When you're, you're going all the time, but this patient said, no, this is the first time in my therapy. And it had been like, he had been a couple of years post-stroke. He said that I thought about what I wanted and it happened. And he said, it wasn't a clinician opening my hand for me. He even said it wasn't e-stem that the clinician had to hit the trigger for it to even open my hand. He was like, I thought it and it did it. And so that was so motivating to him. And then I, that was, that was the day that I actually took a step back and, you know, as a clinician, you're in the clinics, you're taught go, 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 you know, and you think it's just boring, but really it wasn't like for him, that was the first time he said in, you know, years he controlled what he wanted and he felt a sense of just self again. And so it was just that little piece and that's huge and motivating and intrinsically. So it, it affects everyone differently. And I think you just said, it's probably boring for us clinicians. Yeah, I, you're probably right <laughs> because I think it affects patients very differently. So. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I got agree. goosebumps with that story. Get the tissues uh, out. I have a lot of good, good. You want to hear another like a yes, wonderful please. story? Cause yes. oh, it was great. Um, this was an individual, um, in the, one of my first clinical studies, which was a pilot when we just started doing BCI kind of interventions and she was, I think six years post-stroke and she also was deaf and her primary communication was sign language and always had been obviously was not able to sign bilaterally at all. A lot of fingerspelling on one hand. And then at probably around the eight week mark, seven, eight week mark, she came in and was able, not perfectly, but much better, was able to bilaterally do some signage with her husband again. And then she was also able to use both hands to tie her shoes. And that was a huge piece because her husband was waking up early just to help her every day before he went to work, even if she wasn't ready to get up yet for the day, just to tie her shoes and whatnot. So um, it just, it's so interesting how the brain works for everyone. And again, what we might think is a boring intervention really is building new connections for patients. And so it's, it's exciting to see. I love it. it. So since you mentioned this person at the eight week mark, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about criteria for participation, abilities Mm -hmm. that people have when they start? Is there, how are we supposed to think about this? Yeah. 
In our, when we started really opening up our clinical studies, I was wanting to open it up to what it was the most representative of the whole spectrum that we could in our chronic stroke population. So I wanted people who came into our study, they could have no movement at all, or they could have, they could maybe even have just a delayed serial opposition, which they're really high level, and then everything in between. The only thing that I didn't want was contractures, because obviously contractures, device wouldn't fit comfortably. Other things I would look at that maybe that person wasn't a great candidate was if they had such poor attention that they couldn't, I mean, they could not pay attention or if they weren't able to follow a one-step direction. And in kind of the device that I've worked with, we try to do a visual plus a simple sentence or a simple word. So if somebody with aphasia, maybe that might be still an effective way to communicate. But that's usually what I'm looking for. But in the whole spectrum of thing, I should talk about this. So somebody really high level who somebody was playing the piano and just had like a delayed motor processing speed. If I'm going to get real nerdy on you, I think her Fugelmeyer was probably like a 58. So out of 66, really high. I, yeah, I remember her. And she went and used BCI therapy every day, five out of seven days a week. This is something key in the the research study was five out of seven days a week for 12 weeks. And so one hour a day if you can. If you can't, that's fine. Now, again, this was just recommended. A lot of our folks did not achieve that, but it was the marker that we wanted in consistency. But that person really high level got to a 64, I believe, out of 66 and was able to go back to playing the piano. And so, so again, when we're looking at these BCI interventions, as long as the whatever BCI system you're using if it fits comfortably for the patient, there's a signal and they can follow the directions, go for it. And so you can have somebody extremely, you know, no movement to really good movement and still see some really nice results. So, Oh, and by the way, most individuals, when, we, when you would say, if I'm tracking outcome measures, when do we actually notice an improvement? And then when does the patient say, I begin to notice a change? Usually happen around the six-week mark is when we would see it. That's pretty soon. Yeah. I think it is. But if you think that's still five out of seven days a week for, you know, that's a lot of time that's not traditionally done in stroke rehab outpatient today, except if you're seeing Doro. Seeing Doro, right. you're getting it. <laughs> exactly. Right. I think if, um, forgot my thought. I, I, I forgot. It's gone. That's all good. Um, you can totally cut this out, but this is just something nerdy that I was like, yes, we did this right. <laughs> and all the, we had three clinical studies where I worked and we pulled all the data and I was really like a stickler on no bias at all and making sure we had extra raters, all this stuff. So then we get all of our data and then I, I find it just came out, you know, our data ended about a year or so ago, but, um, I see this whole meta-analysis come out on stroke rehab upper limb for BCI, and it had like 466 patients and, you know, looked at all of it, and our results were literally like identical to theirs. Like when you looked at the average change on Fugelmeyer, we hit like literally maybe like a tenth of a point different. And I was like, yes. So I was like, then all of our research, like in my mind, I was like, we did it right. Like we did it right, and I feel validated now, you know, looking at the other research, we land right in the same spot. So... You don't have to put that in there, but that's just my nerdy self where I was like, we did this right. Because that's that was something I was big on going into all this. Like, we need to do this right and capture the right step. 
I think that's a good thing to leave in there because, okay. <laughs> you know, a lot of everybody's trying to figure out what does this mean for me as a clinician? What does this mean for me as a survivor when I hear about data? What does that really mm-hmm. mean? And so I think that's an important thing. There needs to be a playbook, like a handbook. Yeah. Uh-huh. For Well, there's lots of them, right? But like an updated always handbook for them. I feel like there's so much literature out there. Yeah, there is. And sometimes it makes you sleepy just to try to read it when you really don't even know what this means. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to put this down now. Yeah. Yeah. I And it's tricky. You know, I again, with stroke rehab, and even I almost got tricked a little while ago. I read a recent article on BCI that someone had done, and it very vaguely glossed over like in one sentence that this was done basically in the subacute phase. And everyone had to have really high action research arm test scores. So they had to be really high level and right oh. post kind of stroke. And so I was seeing like, oh, wow, they had great results. And in my mind, I was like, what are they doing? Like, I want to know what, what are they doing? And then I realized like, oh, it's in that side. Okay. okay. <laughs> it wasn't chronic. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, they just kind of gloss over that. But, you know, so you had to be smart when you read some of these articles. They can trick yes. you. Yeah. Yeah, they can. So there are two things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about muscle tone because you did bring up contractures. So no Mm -hmm. one who's contracted, but can we talk a little bit about muscle tone? And then I want to talk about uh, length of time for the dosing. So you did say 12 weeks and people see changes at six weeks. So how should we as clinicians think about putting somebody on a program? So that's interesting. So if you, again, it's, if there's clinics like Doro that can do intensives, great. I think with BCI and the way it's going, it would be a home, it would have to be a home program in my mind. It would have to be a system that goes home with the patient. It becomes their home exercise program. Truly it's something, and I think this is good. And I know we say it as clinicians all the time, some, not all, but some patients come into clinics and think if they just walk through those therapy doors, they're going to get better. But really the reality is that again, like you said, it's really tough. It's hard work and they have to put in that hard work. And I think using BCI in a home setting, something very easy for a patient to use so they can get very, as I say, high valued repetitions, intense repetitions. That's what I would like to see because what we looked at was five out of seven days a week. And in each day, in that one hour session, we, you know, it was 150 repetitions and people are usually tired by the end of it too. And so it's putting in that work outside I mean, two BCI sessions, Dora. I mean, that's just like makes my heart flutter that you're, you want to do that in your clinic. It makes me so excited. So there's that. But then the muscle tone piece that you're talking about. So to be very honest, I the lower the tone to me, the better. Like in the modified Ashworth score, I tend to like two and under. But this is, again, just in my world, which is the upper extremity. In other BCIs, this may not be as big as a piece, but in the upper extremity for stroke, I do like the elbow to be at two or less. Sometimes when it's at a three, what I notice is, or even later, you know, if they try to do something functional at the shoulder, you get that flexor tone kicking in and everything tightens up and then it's it's hard to get it all to relax down again to keep going. Or sometimes it's just so hard to get passively stretched that still if they try, even when they're thinking on moving their hand, their tone kicks in and maybe the, the, the device they're wearing on their hand wouldn't fit comfortably. So those are kind of why I steer away from three. Obviously, I steer away from four if it would affect the wear of the device. But two and under tends to be really good. 
Okay. So in, in one of the BCI systems that, that I've worked with in, you know, we have a, a component of passive range even before, like if you're just to kind of prime you before and stretch slowly before you're getting into these repetitions. And I actually, Dora, I don't know if you know this, but when it, I go talk about rep counts and how many repetitions a patient needs to do, and let's say they're using a BCI system and it counts those repetitions for them. I, in the specific device that we helped develop, it was, I only counted BCI repetitions, so intention thought-based, and an active repetition, like they're actively trying to volitionally do it themselves. But if I did a passive mode, just a stretch, I don't count that as a rep. And I got some feedback from a patient that was pretty upset that I wasn't counting <laughs> the <laughs> passive stretch rep. And I was like, he's like, because I'm really, and, and he made a good point. He said, I'm really trying to relax so that it can get a good stretch. So I would say, oh, okay, maybe I should be counting passive reps, but then, you know, I still don't. Well, I, I wouldn't either. I, yeah. I, no. I get it. I get where you're coming from. <laughs> the brain's going to be like, no, I right. didn't do it's, that. It's easy. Like, I, yeah, it's easy. It's doing it for me, you know, so. Thanks for helping me relax <laughs> so that I can do my work. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> so I don't know. Dora, this is interesting. In the paradigm shift, because I think all advanced tech, all of the whole we all know intensity, repetitions, task base, all of this is so huge. Do you feel like, where do you feel like the huge paradigm shift needs to happen for clinicians that are not as a unicorn like you, you're a unicorn, but they're in their outpatient clinic and they want to do the best for their patients and do these types of things, but they feel like they're running, you know, hundred miles an hour or get stuck in their old ways. Like what, what advice would you have? I think it would come down to repetitions, amount yeah. of repetitions. I feel like that's the biggest thing where clinicians still feel guilty if they ask a client, okay, I want you to give me 15 reps. Okay, we're going to do it one more time and then we'll move on. It's like, no, oh, if uh -huh. it's under 200, we don't even get started. You know, that's what I would push in other settings, the repetition, even if they don't have any kind of advanced technology. Mm -hmm. I feel repetition and mindfulness mm -hmm. are two of the biggest players yeah, in stroke I, yeah. recovery. Um, I say that motor yeah. imagery piece, like you oh, know, yes, we were talking imagery. about in the mirror therapy, yes. I think mm -hmm. that is huge as well. So yeah. that mental practice, you know. Just... Yeah. You know, and you mentioned home program, subacute facilities and inpatient rehab facilities, they're sending people home sooner Early. than mm -hmm. they should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so for clinicians, like clinician thinking, having solid home programs to send people home with, training them in the clinic. Pete and I talked about this all the time on the podcast. Why are we, why are we waiting until the day before discharge to set <laughs> somebody up with their home program? Here, do a few exercises at home. Goodbye. No. Oh, That's know. not going to help people recover. Start in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And if you think about OT teaching and learning concepts, like uh, that to me makes the most sense. Tell, show, do, and repeat. Mm -hmm. Tell, show, do, and repeat. And if, if people think about how much time they invest in their studies, like clinicians, think about how much time you spend studying before you learn something to the point of mastery. Well, th the same is true for the clients we serve. Mm -hmm. We need to give them that space. And, you know, I agree. I think, you know, again, you're right. It's like right uh, the day of discharge or the day before it's grabbing the generic, usually 
hand out writing the rep putty yeah here's your right poor quality printed right exactly it's been copied like a thousand times over (laughs) (laughs) i can see my hand hand already i'm not saying anything people don't know (laughs) oh no people would agree with us they know that that's you know because i feel and the other thing i noticed you know to an inpatient is because patients are there in such a less duration now it's okay. Well, we're just going to focus really quickly on your ADL function and safety, and and that's all we can do. And then you're out. And I, there's that huge gap, right? There's that mm-hmm. huge gap, or a gap, a drop off. And I mean, again, that's another area for a home program. The mm-hmm. the system that that I worked with, it does have this component. And actually, I should bring this up. And I overlooked this because sometimes you're so close to it. It it is truly a home device that's what it was studied in so all of our patients who are chronic stroke who came in i trained them with the system sent them home and they use this all at home oh my gosh and so they would come in in the first study we had them coming every two weeks and would do outcome measures and check on them um after it worked really well we went to four weeks and so in the other studies we were four weeks and they would come in and so this was something obviously even in the the prototype research days we had to make as simple as we could yeah. send them home. Obviously they can call us as a therapist and talk to us at any time, but then we could remotely check in and actually see what they were doing. Anytime they use their system, it would sync on their Wi-Fi, and I would know how many repetitions do they do. And I would also know like, hey, your your signal quality maybe wasn't that great. It was really noisy. And it, was it noisy because you something wasn't set up right? Or was it noisy because you were all over the place and you were moving? And so it was a way that I think, and, and this isn't just for BCI, but when technology starts going into the home like this, and it will, and it, I can't wait for it to do that, is to understand what they're doing in their home program, because that's where we're going to see this recovery happen, right? When they own it and they they start doing this at home too. And so just really keeping that intensity at home and being able to make sure it's happening gives us the best home exercise program. Because we all know right now people come in, it's like, oh, have you done your exercises? Like, oh, yeah. It's like, okay, can you show me your first one? And then they can't show you the first one. (laughs) So, you know, a little clue. (laughs) Right, right. So I think it's going to be great to kind of see advanced tech, BCI and beyond to push these things in a way in the home that clinicians are still very connected can still give their clinical skill set and their their input on, but also giving what these stroke recovery, you know, survivors need and that they're not getting. So, right. We talked for a long time about BCI in general. Mm -hmm. I wonder, are we allowed to know about the specific device that you work with and that Doro is getting, or is that against the rules for this podcast? No, I can share it. I just don't, again, I just don't want to be overly promotional. I'm I actually am like that in all of my usually things, but no, I can talk about it. So I work for Neurolutions and it is a brain computer interface company. Our first product, it's called the Ipsy Hand and Ipsy, and if you follow this podcast, Ipsilateral. So we're picking up the Ipsilateral side of the affected arm. So it's the uninjured side of the brain. So our system is a three-part system. It's a dry electrode headset where a patient, we looked at it, can they put it on one-handed? Because again, this was a clinical study where the patient was taken at home. So they could don it one-handed. And then there was an orthosis that if they could just stretch with with the, uh, the better, stronger hand and open up two fingers to put into the device, you could just snap the orthosis back without finagling too much and facilitating too much tone. And then they have a tablet. And so 
they turn on their tablet, it would walk them through their therapy. If they, it would test to make sure their headset was on correctly, the connections were good. And then they would go into their therapy program that was customized for them of controlling and opening and closing this hand. So it's, it's called the Ipsy hand. And I can say, I've been silent because I've worked with Neurolutions now for 10 and a half years. So we kept everything in clinical studies, you know, under hush. We never talked about it to anyone. And now this week we're officially commercially launching it. So as an OT, I get excited because I was able in, you know, to work with this team that brought it from an idea to a prototype into clinical trials through the FDA. And then now we're here in Doro was actually our number one choice for wanting to put the system in this clinic. I, I know it, it really was. There's there are specific criteria that we look at and there's specific criteria that even as there's other clinicians on my team, we look at of, is this the right place for the, the device? And again, this is where I want the paradigm shift. I don't want people just to sell devices because they feel like they can into clinics. We want it to go into the right place. And Doro to us felt like that was the right place. And so this week, I'm flying out right after this podcast <laughs> to head to Orlando. Doro has seen this system before. She'd, she had helped a little bit with some testing. But now we get to release these babies into the wild. They're going off to school, as I said. We'll, we'll leave them in, in really good hands. And it's exciting. So it, it's, it's actually, you know, I'm hitting like this milestone. I'm pretty, it's exciting. So. It's super exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait for clients. I'm so excited Same for here. the clients. Same here. Yeah. To finally have access to new advanced technology and see how we can help them with it, help them yeah. on their recovery. Yeah. So it's exciting. So I have a question for you. Yeah. So let's say we have a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast and they feel motivated to bring new tech into their clinic or even a hospital setting. What would, mm -hmm. what would you recommend to them? to bring high tech in a traditional setting? So there's, it's, I think a lot of it's going to be the evidence push. If their hospital system is going to invest in something, they're going to want to see that it's actually evidence-based and, and does what it says it's going to do. And I think that's a good point. I'm not trying to be promotional at all, but with our company, we valued a lot of advanced tech. And again, clinicians don't, we don't get this training when we're in school. A lot of advanced tech, at times is they register with the FDA as a class one device where, which is fine. No problems with that. We could have done that as well, but we decided to go through as a class two, which meant we want to make sure our intervention says what it is actually doing and we get the evidence and we have FDA review it. And so I think that's an important piece. I wish I could just evaluate tech for companies all the time. That's a huge piece. I'd want to see what's the evidence and then not just, hearing it from the company. I want to hear it from a third party, you know, your peer reviewed journals. I want to hear it from the FDA. And so I don't know if you had mentioned it or maybe we didn't, we got the breakthrough designation that this was a breakthrough technology. There was an option for chronic stroke survivors that has never been seen before that had clinical evidence. So the FDA granted us a breakthrough designation and then a de novo, which is you are the first brain computer interface for stroke recovery that actually, you know, has evidence that you can market for. And so I think for clinicians, we're not taught how to evaluate advanced tech. And I think that's the huge gap that needs to be filled in here is looking at the actual evidence. Who else has looked at this evidence besides the company itself? And then does it fit into my setting based off of the evidence what we're seeing? And if it does, then let's approach it in that fashion of this is the evidence. It's 
it's going, you know, it's going to be easy for our patients. It's going to fit into what our kind of our work streams are already. I think that's the way to do it. But again, it's making sure that the technology is a right fit for who you're seeing in the evidence. It's hard though, right? It's hard to break through the hospital systems. and It and is. It it's, really it, is. I agree. Yeah. It was a loaded question. I mean, it's so hard to, to break down the barriers and it Deb is. has her hand raised. I have my hand raised and I want <laughs> to comment on this because I worked for a hospital system for many years. And when you're talking about a paradigm shift, this people really need to think about the culture of the setting that they work in. And I, so oh, I did my master's research on constraint-induced therapy. Now that's a long Sorry, time ago. I love it. I, love I do it. too. Yeah. And then it, it's, I, I've never seen it done anywhere. People, I got huge resistance to the point where I was not allowed to do research. I ended up having to do a project, which made me cry. But I understand and appreciate the wisdom of the people on my team in college because I probably never would have graduated if you can't do the research, right? So there was a level of wisdom there. So to this day, Doro, you are the only one I know who is actually doing constraint-induced therapy, except for some um, people that I met this past spring who were interested in learning about it, and we made a program, and they're using it in their clinics now. Um, so when you look at things like that, then I was asked to participate in putting together an early mobility program for our hospital because we had two intensive care units and you know, people were having some poor outcomes. So here we implement this program, which was a great program, and it works. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a dedicated person or persons running this program at all times because there's so much pushback and so much resistance. I cannot even tell you, I had nurses hating me and saying, mm -hmm. you know, your program is a pain in the... Mm. It's causing this is not, more, a little this bit is more not work. my program. This is not my right. program. This is actually a nursing run program and it works. And mm -hmm. so I, I'm super excited. I'm super excited about what you're saying. And, and I just want to say, if you're the person who feels excited and you want to start something in your facility, you have to understand what you're involved in so that you can come up with the right strategy to make something go. Because it's not just mm -hmm. as easy as saying, we're going to do this. Yep. It, nobody likes change. No. I, and, and, and when I was an outpatient, I remember a therapist saying that nobody likes change. And when there's any little change, whether, you know, it doesn't matter. It could be a positive or negative. It will always have pushback. There will always be like just issues and bumps in the road. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I think COVID a little bit pushed, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit differently. People were kind of forced into that change. But it's now figuring out how kind of this new world, I think, post-COVID. and Yeah. You know. And people are figuring it out. I know some people who are starting their own practices. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're doing therapy their way and yeah. finding out that it works. They, they don't have to see 15 to 25 to 35 people in a day. I know. They can, you know, and they can give people what they need. So, Like the unicorn that Doro is. I know. I'm sorry, but every time you say unicorn, you are a unicorn. I, I picture myself <laughs> pooping glitter. 
Oh, well, please. That is hysterical because I mean, that's the only we'll thing get, I envision. We'll get you a t-shirt with rainbow poop. Yeah, poop. that's the only <laughs> thing. I, that's what I put together and with then, a unicorn. It's like a white <laughs> unicorn shooting up sparkles and glitter. That is you. <laughs> Oh, yes, it is. This is this has so been so though. great. This has been so incredibly great. Oh, Dora, I could hang out with all of you guys here for a while. Well, you gotta get to hang out with me here in a couple hours. I know, I know. I'm I'm pumped. I didn't I'm, I'm feeling night, a little I'm feeling a little jealous. Oh, where, you feel where, left now, where out? are come you, on, Deb? Come on down. Come on yeah, down. Where are you? Where are I'm you in Buff- I'm in the Buffalo, New York area. Oh, quick so I do I do have my Florida license because yeah. that is my that's my ultimate destination. I oh. have family down there. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just hop on a flight. I'm sure Buffalo has some nice non stops for today. Probably. There you <laughs> go. Southwest. I'll yeah, be right there. there. I know. They're the best, by the way. No, I like Delta. I fly Delta. Oh, do you? Oh, I, do. I, I didn't like Delta. They put me in the baby ghetto when I flew to Germany. <laughs> Yeah, we had. Well, I just we had, went to Germany, and I. I my, oh, you got to fly Lufthansa. I did fly yeah. Lufthansa. It was that's nice. totally different. They come Delta around with bread baskets. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. I I got bread and jelly constantly. I mean, they were coming around with baskets of bread this entire time. I was like, oh, you guys are wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, this is so exciting. I so I'm. Where do we go from here? Do do you come back on after Doro has sure um, her neck her yeah you know I think that own. wouldn't be a bad idea. You want to know why? Because why? I love to hear just feedback. She's going to hear from the patients, and I think just hearing back patients and how they're doing and how it is as a clinic to integrate advanced tech. And you've done it quite a bit, Doro. But you know just to kind of set the stone to help clinicians think like, can I do this? Can we do this? Is mm-hmm. it time for us to start thinking, is this a, a good way for our patients to get repetition? And I think you're a very good role model, actually, Dora, mm-hmm. for a lot of these new grads and be wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Oh, don't be bashful. <laughs> it's the truth. It is the truth. I know. I know, it is. Now, if I really want to make you feel really like, you're going to hide now. I think I went through a list of, it was like 400 plus outpatient clinics that I had gone through and rated to see where did I want to try out the Ipsy hand first, like where first and she's number one. So. Well, well, you make me cry. Yeah. I, know. I, this is <laughs> like the third time I've gotten goosebumps during this oh, chat that we're having. I feel like a very good clinician. You're a very good she clinician. Is. Yeah, so something to be. All said. right, this is this is not about me. This is about oh, no. technology. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody's looking. For, you know, everybody's looking for the thing that works, and you're willing to try it. Uh-huh. And Lauren, yes, but I you... want to give that credit to my. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I really want to pass that credit on to my clients. Yeah, because they give me the chance to try it. Yeah, um, it's, it's all. Uh, um, it's all. I see a circle and everybody, if everybody on the same circular path that eventually will turn into a spiral, but like the technology creators and the clinical 
deliverers and the survivors. It's like we're all, everybody, uh, we're, it's like you're all in the same frame of mm -hmm. mind. You have the same common goal, the, the yeah. same value system, I think is where I'm trying to get at here. And um, so it's, it is, it's all of that. Mm -hmm. It's all of that. And the one thing I used to always tell patients, and, and I will say where I was, we actually did have quite a bit of a lot of advanced tech. And again, that motivates some patients. But as with any intervention, I think every clinician in industry with technology should say this as well, because I think it's very important. As with any intervention, it works for some and it doesn't work for some. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a pharmaceutical or a tech, that's just the way it is. And so I, I hope that you know, when we're thinking about these new paradigm shifts to better our patients, that we kind of look at it in that aspect, you know, not that this device is going to work for you, but it's, it's something we should try because we know this in the best evidence. Let's try it. You know, I agree. So. There's no one size fits all yet yeah. in stroke or brain injury rehab. And it, that's where I feel it takes a skilled clinician to figure out mm -hmm. what is needed. What are the, the, intervention that this specific client responds best to mm -hmm. and then use them yeah. and you know a lot of times uh, I still I've been in the field for a hot minute now but I still look at myself as a grasshopper and I learn from every client in every case mm -hmm. because I try new combinations of treatments and I feel like that's a huge step for many clinicians out there to take to just be be mm -hmm. brave, try new stuff. You're not gonna hurt anybody necessarily. Yeah, I try not to hurt anybody at least. <laughs> um, but just try whatever, right. whatever fits your client the best might give you the most success yep. in in the intervention. I'm glad you brought that up that skilled thinking. Mm -hmm. And this is an important point, because when clinicians do something well, they make it look easy. And people don't always realize the amount of learning that has already occurred with this person and the, the understandings that a skilled clinician has about a diagnosis, about the interventions, about the way a person presents many, many components. And then understanding the quality of the evidence and understanding the quality of the intervention and putting all of those pieces together. I know it's easy for people to get into certain mindsets and think, oh, well, this device, it's half the cost of mm -hmm. that. And to think, but you're not, you're oftentimes comparing apples to oranges and mm -hmm. not understanding the clinical skill that's involved. Yeah. Now, I can't speak to the company or the device I work for, but when I was in clinic, I remembered loving thinking, you know, well, for this person, you could actually possibly pair these both technologies together or, you know, and just try it. And so, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's fun that way. <laughs> it is fun that way. So. It is. Well, this has been great. Are we finished? Did we talk about all the things that we wanted to cover here? If you want. Um. So if a client listens to, or a stroke survivor listens to this podcast and says, I want to try BCI, where do they go? Dora. Orlando. No. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Neurohub. Let's cut. We're going to re-record this. 
door. I just want him to just get that in there. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's actually um interesting that you say that. Um well, there's a lot there's oh, there's not a lot of BCI out there. That's what's you know, there's just now it's like emerging kind of into the clinical practice. It's finding a clinic that's adopted it. I think with BCI in general, it's finding who's actually using it, which is very little so far because it's so new and it's so emerging. So, so Dora is my answer right now. Okay. <laughs> so that is it. cut. <laughs> just, so this isn't going anywhere else right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Let's, let's Good. stop here because otherwise I need to um, have three more job postings. <laughs> You don't Find have to even post. You know that I've got, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be you down there. you got a there. Florida license, don't you? I sure Come do. Come on down. I can get a license. I can you get a license. So yeah. easy to get. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm already in Illinois, be? Missouri. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. How fun would that be? Oh, if go. I came out, oh, I would love it. I, I just want to have fun at work again. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah so here, here's my proposal. So we're going to do three-week intensives. On the got first it. weekend, we're going to go to New Smyrna Beach. Get attacked by sharks or get might be nibbled on by sharks. <laughs> it's not my but, favorite beach. <laughs> All right, fine. We'll go to St. Pete's. St. Pete, Clearwater. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll go there. Okay. Second weekend, we're going to do yoga on a goat farm. <laughs> Love it. Because it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> she does it all the time. Baby goat yoga. Brings out her unicorn self. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that, that sparkly poop. Oh, yeah. I gotta go now. <laughs> do you get rainbows? Yes, I do. That's Where what do I you do when I stab people with my head? <laughs> so tell me more. Where are you taking me after goat yoga? Oh yeah, I don't know the third week yet. Oh, um, don't God. be a surprise. We'll have to. Oh maybe. Oh, I told you it's gator season. We oh, should go gator hunting. Ooh. I've never hunted gator. I, I mean, oh, I just make it sound like I did. Have you? Have you ate gator? I had gator nuggets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, Chewy? it's like kind of, no, kind of like funky chicken nuggets where you're like, well, this is not chicken, but just a little bit more funky. Oh, I see. I can't wait. That sounds fun. Yeah. You sound really yeah, I'll excited. sneak some gator in there. <laughs> yeah. Don't you worry. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, this is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop recording. I want to mention the Noggins and Neurons podcast membership. If you love what you hear on the podcast and want to take your recovery or practice to new places, consider joining the membership. Go to nogginsandneurons.supercast.com and sign up. Right now, membership is just $5 a month through October 15th, 2022. Signing up now puts you in the founder circle, and who doesn't want to be part of that? The fee will go up a bit after October 15th as well. Check the show notes for the membership link, as well as other good things that we talk about always. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. 
also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.